I love the sequence, as I thought about it this week, I love the sequence of the last three weeks in the life of our church. And if you've been here for the last three weeks, maybe you haven't paused to think about it uh, long enough, but as I reflected on this week, it's just such a perfect sequence because a few weeks ago we were celebrating what? The the resurrection, Easter, Easter Sunday, where we celebrate our risen Lord, Resurrection Sunday. And then last week, uh, if you were here for a beautiful Sunday, God gave us a gorgeous day of weather and we baptized about 15 folks uh, out there on the lawn in a horse trough. I mean, Texas style baptism, right? Amen. Um, And this week, to have this emphasis on missions, that we want to help our brothers and sisters in Haiti and help the church and and what God is doing in this very uh, poor, not only uh, physically, but spiritually poor part of our world. It's just a wonderful progress, a wonderful progression, because resurrection, Jesus' resurrection brings new life to his followers. It promises us New life beginning today and certainly new life when Jesus returns in the kingdom that is to come. And it's only right to symbolize and to show that new life through obedience to baptism. So we baptized folks and and God's goal is not only to have us hear the good news and respond to that good news, come to life and be baptized. The Great Commission says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, right? There's, there's making disciples, there's baptizing people into the faith, and there's also teaching to go and do that process again, to make other disciples. So from spiritual birth, resurrection, to baptism, and now to mission, God has called those who follow him, not just to follow him, but also to be his ambassador, to be a part of the mission of God, not just to follow yourself, but to help find other followers and to make disciples, to join God's mission on this earth. So it makes just perfect sense, such a, such a wonderful sequence as we go through these three things. And this morning, as we're celebrating uh, helping folks in Haiti, we're supposed to be on mission. And that's what we see in the book of Philippians with this church family that in Acts chapter 16, they heard the news, they were baptized, and now they partnered with Paul not only to build this church in their community, but to partner with Paul to help the, expand the gospel and expand the church throughout the Roman world at the time, throughout the Mediterranean world. Uh, last week, we looked at one of my favorite verses in Philippians that he gives this dear church that he come to love so much. And actually, Philippians is, is really, it's full of a lot of favorite verses, a lot of quotable verses. Uh, you might call them kind of coffee mug verses, those, those favorite verses that you hang on to. Maybe, you know, your mom had them, you know, needle craft into pillows and stuff. Just great verses, right? Um, we looked at one last week, but there's others that come to mind. In Philippians 1.21, Paul says this one-liner. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wonderful nugget, wonderful 
coffee mug type verse. Uh, on in Philippians chapter two, we'll get there eventually. Philippians chapter two, he talks this wonderful hymn of Christ. He says, have this same attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain that by saying, he who is in the very form of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. It's a wonderful passage, Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter three, you're probably familiar with these verses. Philippians three, verse 10. Paul says his, his life passion, verse 10, is I wanna know Christ. I wanna know Christ, and then he goes on to expand that. I wanna know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Coming to new life, being baptized, the power of his resurrection, not only the power of his resurrection, but fellowship in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Philippians 3, you all know that verse, forgetting what lies behind and straining on to what lies ahead. I press on, right? Another wonderful Verse Philippians chapter four, you maybe uh, moms, maybe you've held on to verse six where it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. It's a great verse, great coffee mug verse and probably the most quoted verse. And the book of Philippians comes in chapter four. You've heard it before. I'm confident all of you have heard it before. Philippians 4.13 says what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The most popular verse in Philippians. Now, we'll get to that eventually, but not only is it the most popular verse in Philippians, it's probably the, uh, the also the most misused verse in Philippians, okay? When I was in high school, that verse was on the back of my weightlifting camp t-shirt, okay? As if Paul had in mind uh, my bench press max, uh, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what he's talking about, okay? I can't wait to get to that passage to be able to set the record straight. What is he talking about? Look at the verses before and after. It's a great passage, but it's probably one of the most abused passages uh, in our day. Philippians 4.13, can't wait to get there. But last week, I looked at one of my all-time favorite verses. That's Philippians 1.6. We looked at it together last week. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's such hope for those that were baptized. It's such hope for all of us that ultimately it's not about us. It's not about our faithfulness to stay on track with God, but it's about his faithfulness to us. He began the good work and he will bring it to completion. This morning, we move along again, albeit slowly, but we're going to look at the prayer in chapter 1, uh, primarily verses 8 through 11. But I want to go ahead and read verses 3 through 11 for us to get the context. So if you've got a Bible, please get your nose in the Bible. I want you to follow along here with me. But let's read verses 3 through 11, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll jump in here quickly, okay? Philippians 1, 3 through 11, nose in the Bible, nose in your Bible app, wherever you should also know that on our CC, our Centennial Church app, the Bible, there's a tab there for the Bible, so you can just go straight to our Centennial app and go straight to the Bible, okay? There's the commercial, sorry. All right, verses 3 through 11, read, follow along with me. 
He prays, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Pray with me. Father God, as we look into these rich words, these wonderful words inspired by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use them to reframe our minds, to reframe our hearts. Lord, that you would make us people of prayer and people of abounding love. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we jump in here, you see uh, the context there, but jumping in at verse 8, first of all, notice in verse 8 the deep affection here. He says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It was common in the ancient times, it was common then for even pagan people to call upon the names of their gods to witness something that they were doing. Paul is saying, I call upon the true God of Israel, I call upon the real God as my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is a deep uh, emotional word here. Some translations, if you have an old King James version, it, it translates this, that I, I have an affection for you, I love you from the bowels. How's that for a nice picture? Way down deep. I love you from the intestines. It's a deep, affectionate love that I have for you. And we've seen that uh, as we've started through this first chapter. You go back up uh, to verse three. He's talking about his deep prayer for them. He's saying, I'm praying for you all the time. I said a couple weeks ago, every time God brings them, the Philippians, to his mind, he brings them to God in prayer. God puts you on my mind, and so I bring you to God in prayer. I'm praying for you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. I, I love you so much. I'm filled with joy as I think about you because you've partnered with me. You've not only partaken of the gospel, you, but you've partnered with me in gospel ministry and getting this good news around the world. You've come alongside me, and, and I have this deep affection for you. Verse 8, I want us... I want Centennial Church to be like this, that we have a deep affection one for another as God moves in us, as we get to know one another better, as we spur one another on to love and good deeds, that we don't just sit in rows, but that we sit around tables and we fellowship and we help people, we help one another through the hard times. He says, that's the kind of love I have for you. That's the kind of love that's supposed to be a part of a church family. One... Uh, commentator, one pastor has summarized Paul's affection here uh, cutely this way. Warren Wiersbe says, uh, according to verses one through six, Paul says, I have you on my mind. I'm praying for you. And you get later in the verses seven through eight, he says, I have you in my heart. If you look at verse seven, that's exactly what he says. It's, it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. 
And then the prayer, beginning in verse 9, I have you in my prayers. I have you on my mind. I have you in my heart. I have you in my prayers. There's a deep affection here as he prays for the Philippian church. One thing I want us to take note of here as we look at this prayer of Paul is to notice, first of all, the relationship between God's work and our work. The relationship between God's work and our work. And this is a bit of a paradox because if you're here last week or if you heard me summarize, the the promise, the hope last week was it's he who began a good work in you and he will complete it. God began the good work and he will complete it. And often what we do in our day is take that truth, take that promise, hey, God's going to complete the work. And the logic that we go through is, okay, well, if God's going to complete the work, then I don't have to do anything, right? Hands off. God's going to take care of me. It's God's work. He's going to do it. Paul writes verse 6, but he also, he doesn't take that kind of logic. Paul's logic goes something like this. If God is doing a work in me, then I'm going to work along with God. Because God is at work at me, I'm going to work along with him. So if you get to verse 6 and you say, hey, God's going to do it all, I don't have to do anything, think again, because that's not the logic of Paul. Paul's going to say, even though God will complete the work in you, guess what? I'm praying for you. Wait, Paul, I thought you said God's going to complete the work. Yeah, I did say that, but I'm still praying for you. I'm still wanting you to cooperate and to trust in Christ and to do what you know you were supposed to do. God's faithfulness does not give us excuse to wash our hands of any effort, of any faithfulness on our part. You see the consistency there, the paradox there? God is going to be faithful, but he still prays. He still says, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. God is working, but Paul is still praying. God is working in our hearts, but we are still obeying. We are still trusting. He's gonna go on and talk about this further as we get into chapter two, chapter two, verses 12 and 13. He says, uh, he writes to him there, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he doesn't say work for your salvation, but he's going to say, because God is working in you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 of chapter two, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is faithful, but we still pray, we still obey. If you go on in chapter 13, as, or chapter three, excuse me, as I quoted earlier, chapter three, verse 12, Paul's gonna say this. Hey, God's, God's gonna be faithful, but chapter three, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, not that I've already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Do you get that? God's working but Paul and the Philippians are working along with him. Let me take you one other place, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We were there a few weeks ago for Easter. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, Paul talks a little bit about his lack of qualification to be an apostle, that God's chosen him even though he's unworthy. These are his words, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles, that's, that's his self-esteem right there. That's his worthiness. That's his merit before God to be an apostle. Verse nine, I am the least 
of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. God didn't choose him for his good record, for his good works. He's unworthy. I'm the least of all the apostles. But, but what is Paul's response to God's grace in his life? Verse 10, you see it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see that paradox again? God chose me, God called me, even though I'm unworthy, and therefore I worked for God because God is working in me. God is faithful. He will complete the work, but that doesn't allow us to wash our hands and just sit back and not pray or not cooperate or not obey what God has clearly told us to do. Secondly, the relationship between love and knowledge. Look with me again in verses 9 and 10 as he prays here. Let me flip back to Philippians. The relationship in verses 9 and 10 between love and knowledge. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Love is not just emotion. Love without knowledge is really just a sentimentality. What Paul is praying for here is a maturing love, a growing love, a love that is based on knowledge. Growing knowledge. He's, he's wanting them to grow here in maturity to, to be able to discern. My translation says in verse 10, uh, so that, uh, or in verse 9, excuse me, abounding more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Some of your translations may say depth of insight. If someone comes up to you and they say, hey, you know, met this great gal online. Seems like we've got all the same interests. She loves the outdoors. I love the outdoors. She wants to backpack. I love to backpack. Uh, seems to like have the same taste in music, attends church. I really think I love this gal. Well, how many times have you talked to her? Just two times on the phone, but I really think I love this gal. In wisdom, what do you say to that person? You say, I think that your love may actually just be infatuation at this point or, or might just be lust, but it's not really love because it's not based upon knowledge. You don't yet know this person and you can't really have true love without a better knowledge, without a better understanding. Paul is saying here that your love needs to be coupled, needs to grow in knowledge. You get saved and you hear about Jesus dying on the cross for you. That's enough to come to faith. That's enough knowledge about God to know that you need to love him back. But the rest of the Christian life is understanding and coming to know through biblical teaching and, and through the scriptures more and more of who this God is and what he's done for you. And as knowledge is merged with love, it becomes a mature love and a discerning love but not just an emotional sentimentality, kind of emotional uh, sloppy, if you will, kind of love, but a love that's based upon knowledge and is making you a discerning person. A lot of times I think uh, we, 
when you come to faith in Christ, you're so excited, you're so kind of emotionally high. It's that baptism, that, that camp high, that camp response. And a lot of things change in your life really quickly. And it's like God is just guiding you step by step and he's closing doors and he's opening doors and you're like, God is all around me and I sense his presence all the time. Kind of like we sang before. A lot of people really get hung up later in their spiritual life as they've matured a little because it, feel, it feels like God has, is not as close anymore. It feels like God is not guiding me as clearly in my career path or in these decisions as he was before. Well, some of that could be that we've, we've distanced ourselves from God, but I think oftentimes our spiritual life uh, can be compared much to like our life and our, our parenting of our children. When our kids are young, the, the boundaries are more narrow, right? Do this, don't do that. But as your children grow older and you're trying to help them mature, then the freedoms grow, don't they? The boundaries widen. And what you try at some point as your kids grow older is to say, you know what? I'm not gonna tell you which door to go through. Hopefully, you can now discern what you should do on your own. I think God is often the same way. You get later in your life, you've been following Jesus for a while, and you're like, God, why don't you make it clear? Why don't you just you know, give me an email from heaven and tell me which job to take? But God is up there saying, no, I'm wanting you to use some discernment. I'm wanting to you to use knowledge and to use wisdom to make the decision yourself because my goal for you is your maturity. So I think in some ways God does kind of take his hands off as we mature in our faith and let us kind of come to those decisions by biblical wisdom, by discernment. Discernment by definition is, is this to distinguish or to discriminate. In verse 10, he's gonna say, so that you can approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. In other words, what Paul's saying is there's things that are excellent and that are things that aren't so excellent. And by discernment and by, knowledge, by love that's, that's grounded in knowledge, you can begin to grow as a mature person to make the right decision with the knowledge that God has given you. So it may be, you got this job, you got this job offer. Well, it's a lot more money. Looks great, really want that. But it also moves my family. My wife is really connected with a group of ladies here where she is. It's also gonna take my kids to a new school. Is it best? God may not from heaven strike lightning and tell you what's the right thing to do, but he wants you with discernment to weigh the options, to discriminate between what is good and what might be best. We've got a great church family here that would be uprooting us from, is it best to go for $10,000 more for a new job when all this stuff is here? Maybe you need to get some counsel on that, but God, God is wanting you to discern, to discriminate between what is good and what is best. My pastor growing up, Many of you have met him now, has said this, often the good can be the enemy of the best. Often the good can be the enemy of the best. And what God is trying to do is mature us to prove what is excellent, not just what's acceptable, but what's excellent for our families, for our kids, not just to go with the flow, but to discern, hey, we could do this. We could sign up for this deal, 
and be out and about four nights a week and it'd be okay, but maybe it's not best. We need some discernment. Paul's gonna write elsewhere in the book right after this, Colossians 1.28. Colossians 1.28, this is his hope for the church at Colossa. Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal is not just to get baptized and accept Jesus into our hearts. The goal is to become mature. That happens through knowing Jesus, through searching the scriptures, through being taught to be able to make discernments, judgments. Let me... uh, illustrate this one other way. We're running out of time here, but um, as we're talking about missions this morning, I've been in places of the world. I haven't been in Haiti, but I'm in places in India and Africa, much like the situations in Haiti. And as you go there, your heart, if you're a compassionate person, man, you go to Haiti, you are just going to fall all over yourself. You're going to be like, ah, there's too much. There's more than I can do. And you want to just give. And and as I was on the mission field, oftentimes I have to admit to you, many of you have heard about my trips to Ethiopia and there's wonderful experiences that they were. But oftentimes in our sentimental love, We can do things that actually obstruct people's good. So let me give you a couple examples. So there was always these little shoeshine boys outside uh, the gates where we lived and came to love these guys. We were in Bible study with my temptation was instead of paying them the 50 cents that most people would pay them in that culture was to give them an American $5 bill. Hey, that's loving, right? That's the loving thing to do. But what happens when I give them a $5 bill? The next day, they don't work at all until they see me come out the gate. Because then why should I spend eight hours on all the Ethiopian shoes when the white guy will just come and give me five bucks? I have demotivated him and any sense of work ethic that he has. We, uh, we gave away a lot of soccer balls and even some soccer jerseys and soccer shoes, and they nearly pushed the fence down, trying to get to all these soccer balls and soccer jerseys. And what do you think happened to those 10 and 11-year-olds after they got their shoes and their new soccer ball and walked home? Probably about 50% of them didn't make it home, and that soccer ball was stolen right out from underneath them by an 18-year-old kid who went and sold it. And in our love, we thought we were doing good. But with a little bit of knowledge, with a little bit of sermon of people that have been around the block and people that have done this and say, what you think might be loving may not actually end up being helpful. There's a whole popular book, John smiling over here, there's a whole popular book written a few years ago called When Helping Hurts. It's written all about the mistakes that missionaries have made around the world by trying to help when they actually undercut the, the work that is going on by creating dependence. It's all good intentioned, but discernment is being able to discriminate, to judge between what is good and what is best. I defined it like this, skillfully applying truth to specific situations. Skillfully applying truth to specific situations. This prayer that Paul prays for them is a prayer of an affection, of man, I love you. 
And man, I love to see your love, but I don't want your love just to be sentimental. I don't want it to be childish, if you will, but I want you to grow in a love in accordance with knowledge, in accordance with discernment, so that you can approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He wants the righteousness that they've, I don't have time to go into this this morning, but the righteousness that we've been given, verse 11, is a gift. We don't merit righteousness on our own. But the gift that God gives us of righteousness produces in those who believe fruit, fruit, good works, good deeds of living and of mission and of loving our neighbors, and of loving the poor, and sacrificing, and and giving out of our heart in accordance with knowledge in a way that's helpful. Paul's prayer here is deeply affectionate, and his prayer, as a good pastor would pray for his sheep, is I want you to grow. I want you to grow in love, and I want you to grow with knowledge in your love to a mature person, to a fruitful person. Every person in this room this morning You're here, and I believe that every person here this morning, every person that we baptized last Sunday, you want to make a difference with your life. You want to be part of something that will outlast you. And when God brings us into his family, when we are baptized, we are not just saved for ourselves, but we are put on mission to love maturely, to practice good works, So that as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's my prayer for us, for our new members, for all of Centennial Church, is that God would continue to create this deep affection within us and that our love for God and our love for one another would be a maturing, growing deepening, discerning love. you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would help us to love well. Lord, that we would be people not just of sentimentality, but we would be, would be people of the truth, people of your word that can apply your word skillfully to our loved ones, to our neighbors, to our own choices in life. Lord, I pray that you would make our prayers abundant and our love abounding. Lord, would you help us not only to partake of your grace, but to partner in bringing that grace to others. Lord, mature us, grow us, use us in this world as your light as your instruments, both here in Collin County as well as Haiti and around the world. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.